just to uh, try and do that. Here are my disclosures. And uh, none of them are directly relevant to my talk. So this is what we're going to talk about. Progression of liver fibrosis, methods to stage it, decompensated disease, and management steps to take. And specifically, we're going to talk about liver injury and assessment of fibrosis, and also steatosis, fat in the liver, complications, when do you think about transplantation, and, and again, what do you need to do, even in the worst-case scenario, before the hepatologist takes over? So, you've heard words thrown around, cirrhosis, fibrosis. Fibrosis is your body's response to healing. Um, virtually everyone has cut themselves. You get a cut, it leads often to a scar. Sometimes not. Some people scar a lot. Some people scar just a little bit. And so there are variations in, in the body's response, the exuberance of that fibrosis reaction. And that's, that's part of the natural biological distribution of this healing response. But, but SCAR, essentially the, this, this collagen glue-like stuff that fills spaces where there's been injury is a, a response to a variety of things. We see it with hepatitis viruses in the liver. We see it with NASH, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. Uh, and we see it with alcohol, which causes ASH, alcoholic steatohepatitis, that is, that is indistinguishable from NASH, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. And there's a variety of other things. Uh, inherited metabolic disorders. About 7 to 9% of the U.S. population carries inherited genetic disorder genes that will affect the scarring and fibrosis of the liver and often work in conjunction with other injuries to increase the rates of injury in a given individual. Um, drugs and medications, including in the HIV-infected population, are HIV medications. Uh, things like excess vitamin A. Patients say, oh, if a vitamin's good, then more vitamin is better, and uh, that's a problem because things like vitamin A uh, basically tell the stellate cell, the cell in the liver that makes collagen or scar, to turn on and make more. And so you can actually develop cirrhosis just from taking too much vitamin A. Uh, there's various cholestatic disorders of the liver, those things that impede bile flow, and a variety of immune disorders that can cause injury in the liver. In the world of hepatology, we divide injury into two main classes, those with a hepatocellular injury, those with a cholestatic injury. And hepatocellular injuries are characterized by elevations of ALT, and AST, and in particular ALT, because it's the most sensitive and specific for liver injury. In contrast, cholestatic injuries represent those 
where, where bilirubin and bile acids can't get out of the hepatocyte appropriately for some reason. And uh, then we see an increase in bilirubin, alkaline phosphatase, and GGT. Now, you might say, oh, but a patient with acute viral hepatitis might come in with jaundice. Their bilirubin is elevated, and that's what makes this a little bit hard and a little bit confusing. The primary injury was to the hepatocyte that would cause ALT to rise. As new hepatocytes regenerate in, in the period following the initial injury, they don't immediately reassociate with the bile ducts, with the bile canaliculi. And so you get what's called a post-hepatitic cholestasis, which is characterized by elevated levels of bilirubin, alkphos, and GGT. When you see a patient, you have to figure out where are they in that spectrum because they may have had the primary injury, which may be resolving or already resolved, and now they just may be in a post-hepatitic cholestatic phase, but that's no longer the injury. And so often when we see patients that come in at, with any type of liver injury evidenced by liver test abnormalities, the first thing is being a detective. It's figuring out where are they on this spectrum of a disease process. We also use the words acute and chronic, and they're rather arbitrary. In fact, the definitions have changed since I started in hepatology about 35 years ago. We used to say that, that a patient had an acute process in anything that lasted less than a year, but as we've come to understand the underlying pathophysiology of the disease, the, the timing of that has moved down and now we use a six-month window. So diseases that typically are thought of as acute processes will resolve within six months. And if it lasts longer than that, you're chronic. So if you want to know if your patient with hep C is acute or chronic, the classic definition way of dealing with that is you have to follow them for at least six months and know that they have an ongoing injury present for six months or longer. For those of you that are in the HIV field, uh, you've, you've been brought up on some variation of the DAIDS classification or the DAIDS World Health Organization classification scheme, which talks about toxicity grades. This is a holdover from the early days of development of antiretroviral agents that uh, they needed a way to decide when is there an injury of any type. But, and, and so a group of grades were put together and, uh, and something that was grade three, meaning the value was five times or more the upper limit of normal, was defined as bad and often led during a drug trial to the stopping or holding of that drug. Um, in many ways, particularly in the era of thinking about chronic hepatitis, this classification scheme has done us a great disservice because the majority of patients with chronic viral hepatitis actually fall into what we would think of as grade one injury. And there's been a tendency, particularly in the ID community because of this, 
to ignore that over years, to say, well, it's not that bad. It's only a grade one. But that grade one is a smoldering liver disease process leading to progressive injury, injury leading to scar, scar leading to cirrhosis. And that's why we have this so many patients that are so far out in their disease process before anyone even thinks about trying to manage them or, or intervene in their underlying disease. So we learned back in the early 2000s that, that whatever your lab tells you about uh, normals, they're lying. Because local labs all develop ranges based upon local normals for a variety of tests. And those are statistical normals in their population. Um, in my institution, since I've been there 22 years in Cincinnati, uh, they use 100 samples a year collected from patients getting executive physicals as a way to define normality. So they collect 100 samples from these, from these patients that are presumably healthy because they're healthy executives coming in to get it. But they're not healthy executives. Some of them have hep C and some have hep B and a lot of them drink too much. And, but, but they're still considered the normal reference range. And then they just do a statistical cutoff and say this is normal. That's how your lab works. And what we've come to understand is that if you actually look for disease as defined by seeing injury on a liver biopsy, then the normal ALT for men is 30 or less, and for women is 19 or less. And so your lab may tell you that a normal ALT is 40, but if you have a woman that's 40, she's actually losing liver cells at twice the normal rate or more, and therefore having to replace over time those cells leading to deposition of collagen scar in the liver. So we've been misled for years by our lab underestimating, and particularly underestimating in women, the amount of liver disease present. So how do we assess this? Well, hepatic fibrosis occurs in various patterns. There's a few major patterns in the liver, and the type of injury determines the pattern. It's important to know that for most diseases, the distribution is homogeneous. Uh, so what's happening on the left is also happening on the right side of the liver. Inflammation is transient. Fibrosis is plastic. But the process of change is glacial, meaning that inflammation can come and go relatively quickly. And by relatively quickly, I mean over a few weeks or months. But once collagen is deposited, it can be remodeled. We've just learned that really in the last five to seven years. We used to think it was absolutely fixed. But, but it changes terribly slowly. It doesn't just go away. So when you cure a patient with hep C, and we'll talk some more about this as we go forward, uh, the inflammation component of the injury goes away fairly quickly, 
but the fibrosis does not go away. It's exactly six months after treatment. It is exactly what it was when you started. And so it will change. It will get better in most patients with time once you remove the inciting agent. But that time process is still somewhat ill-defined and certainly is on the time scale of five to 10 years for most patients to make a significant difference. Um, the last important point is that cirrhosis is a histologic diagnosis. In general, it is not a clinical diagnosis unless you know the patient has hepatic decompensation. And I'm going to show you what is the relationship between cirrhosis and decompensation. But again, it's important to know cirrhosis is actually a very specific histologic diagnosis. The other thing is there's different staging systems. Um, and, and I'm not going to have you worry about uh, yet all of these schematics, but I want you to look down here because, because when you read papers or you get a report, if you got a liver biopsy from a pathologist, uh, depending on where they were trained, they use different systems. So, so Kamal Ishak was one of my mentors in Washington, D.C. And uh, so I am very much, uh, when I think about liver biopsies, I think about the Ishak scoring system. Uh, Europeans were all brought up in Medivir, and we often use Medivir because it's the simplest system. I'll today often use Medivir because you can collapse other categories into Medivir, but by doing so, it is less informative. And if you're in the Midwest, then uh, the Bats Ludwig, Jurgen Ludwig at Mayo Clinic, developed a different system. And why do you need to know that? Because the numbers at any stage are not the same. And you can't even begin to assess unless you know not just what is the number if someone gives it to you, but what is the staging system that's associated with that number. Okay, so we're gonna talk mostly in the next few minutes about the non-invasive tests, but you need to know that the non-invasive tests are based upon the liver biopsy. And I think when Dr. Sag asked the question, most of you got it right. That is the most accurate method of staging the liver, though not the one that we most often use anymore. So what is it that we're actually describing? That, that's what you need to know. So this is a normal liver. Uh, and uh, generally, you could say that blue, the two main the two main stains used in liver are an H&E, hematoxylin eosin, uh, or a Masson trichrome stain. And uh, both of them have blue and pinkish colors in them. And blue is bad, and pink is generally good. So this is a normal liver. Um, you could see that there's sort of a a structure to it. There's a something looks circular here and it sort of looks circular here. And those are liver lobules. The liver lobule is the neighborhood of the liver. Within a liver, there are hundreds of thousands of liver lobules. And each liver lobule is made up of hundreds of thousands of hepatocytes, but not just hepatocytes, some other accompanying cells and structures. 
In this one, this is a, a Medivir F1 or fibrosis stage one, we see a portal area. The portal areas are the doors or entry to the liver lobule, and there's a little bit more blue. And that's because there's been injury at the edges of that portal area. And the response to that injury has been the deposition of scar. So we see some blue. This is a, a Medivir 3, F3, um, or commonly called bridging fibrosis. And it's bridging because you could see that around the lobule there's bridges, and in some places there is portal to central bridging to the center of the lobule as well. So the outside of the lobule is starting to become surrounded by scar. Um, but it's not complete, it's just these bridges, and so Again, that's a bridging fibrosis or an F3. Typically that and the next stage, cirrhosis, is collectively called advanced fibrosis. So when someone says advanced fibrosis, it means they're probably this or this. And to be safe, because this assessment by however you did it may not be wrong. The biggest mistake you could make is to say it's this and not and miss this. We often lump them together and treat that patient as if they are in this last stage, which is cirrhosis. Now it's not just cirrhosis because there's more blue. It's cirrhosis specifically because we have nodules which are regenerated liver lobules that are completely surrounded by scar. That is a key concept in terms of everything else we think about, both in terms of treatment and liver disease. And so you can think of this in a couple of different ways. Let's start with treatment. If this is scar surrounding these hepatocytes, and these hepatocytes are producing virus, then it's gonna be harder for a drug to get into that space because there's like a wall around it. Um, you build the wall and things don't get across the wall. So the concentration of drug is thought to be lower in patients and therefore it's harder to treat patients with cirrhosis. Within these are the development and evolution of unique populations. You're gonna hear about resistance and mutation from Dr. Wiles later. But you say, how does that develop? Well, there's several ways it develops. But within a liver lobule, there's the opportunity for development of mutations that are isolated from the rest of the pool of virus and sort of go off in their own way and create a pool of a unique virus type. And finally, because blood flow is altered, when you have this type of scar pattern, the, the drugs that you give, the things that get absorbed in your gut, actually get shunted around the liver. And we're gonna talk more about shunting also in a few minutes. Liver disease, I'm gonna say this a few times, is actually the result of shunting. So the single biggest question that I'm asked by patients and the single biggest error made by clinicians is that people say, how much liver do I have left? That's irrelevant. 
everything in liver disease is really related to the issue of of shunting blood around the liver and how the body manages that and deals with it. Now, liver biopsy is not perfect. And you could see that here, if you did a biopsy, these are really good biopsies. If you did a biopsy like this, you would incorrectly call this patient uh, F3 because it's too small. It didn't give you enough of a view to be able to see that, in fact, there's a complete lobule surrounded by scar here and here and here because you cut those off. So a biopsy is the most definitive best way of getting an answer, but it's got to be a good biopsy. A bad biopsy is, is no better than any other indirect method that gives you a little bit more of a wishy-washy answer. So if you do ever go to biopsy, it's got to be a good one. And that means you have to specify very clearly what, what makes it good. Here are three biopsies. These actually came from a, a national study. Um, and this is one of mine. Nice big biopsies. I'm proud of my biopsies. Um, this is a biopsy from Johns Hopkins, um, where they wrote several papers about the inaccuracy of biopsies because they weren't doing the biopsies. They sent them to radiology. The radiologist's only concern was, can I get tissue? And the t any tissue was good enough. And then they just took whatever they had, and then they found there were inaccuracies later in the interpretation. So this is a, clearly a case where size matters, both length and width. And you could see that when there's good biopsies and expert pathologists, as is shown here, data from the HALT-C study, that there's high concordance at all levels seen on a receiver-operator curve. When we talk about quality in looking at a test result, we often talk about the, the AUC, the area under the curve. And the general rule is that that if it's the best you can get, a 0.7 to a 0.8 or is okay, that 0.8 to 0.89 is good, good enough for clinical practice in many cases, and that a 0.9 or better is considered an excellent test. So the overall AUC was a 0.938. Liver biopsy was a very good test study, good, good methodology. You've already seen uh, Dr. Sag's slide on uh, transient elastography. Um, I do want to describe it. Uh, he said a sponge. I want to describe it a little bit differently. I like to use the analogy of jello. Everyone here at some point in your life made a bowl of jello? Yeah? So you make a bowl of jello. And if you tap the side of it, it shakes back and forth. So, so you send in energy, and you get a shake, and it, and it shakes nicely. And if you take that bowl of Jello and you put it into the fridge, and you don't cover it, water evaporates out of it. And two days later, there's a hard crust on top of your Jello. And if you tap the side of it again, it doesn't shake as much. 
that's the principle of transient elastography, that you send energy in and you essentially measure the shake, which we call stiffness, and we measure in a unit called kilopascals. The idea is that the more scar, the more fibrosis there is, the less shake there is because it's become stiffer like that jello left in the refrigerator. And uh, that we can then relate that back to, to what our findings are on a liver biopsy. This is what the results look like. You saw one of these. I, on this particular one, um, there's, there's two of these. And you could see the slope of the line. And the slope of the line is not the same that, uh, that this one here is much stiffer than this one here because the return is faster. The slope of that return is faster, so it's steeper. And therefore, it has a higher value of kilopascals, suggesting that there is more stiffness in that liver. And, and this is a very high value, and this is a very low value. There's some other numbers on here, and we're going to come back to those. But these are measures of the amount of fat using another th piece of data that you get off the, the current generation of, of transient elastography fiber scan machines, and that's called the cap. And the cap tells us something about the fat content of the liver. So we're going to talk more about fat as well. We do a bunch of measurements. And uh, then we take the average of those measurements. And we also do an assessment of something called the IQR. Because if there's too much internal variability in your results, then the test is invalid. And sometimes people get an answer. It's sort of like those liver biopsies. A bad piece still gives you an answer. Same thing for transient elastography. A bad study still gives you an answer, but it may not be, or it's less likely to be the right answer. So you need to pay attention to those IQRs. The manufacturer says anything up to 30% variability internally is okay, uh, though there's several good studies that say that we should be questioning most, most individual studies where the IQR is greater than 24%. And you also saw this. There are cutoffs. These are soft cutoffs. So for the purpose of studies, when describing a patient, we have to draw a line. But you do need to understand that, that because these numbers, the stiffness, is associated with what you find, there's, there's some variability. And there's other things that cause stiffness in the liver. Fat causes stiffness in the liver. Iron deposition in the liver causes stiffness. Inflammation, so if you have a patient with an ALT that's very showing lots of activity, an ALT of 200, those patients tend to have a lot of inflammation, and inflammation makes the liver stiffer because the liver has been filled with these inflammatory lymphocytes. So we use this test to give us a clue of where we're at and make a good clinical decision, or sometimes we use them 
as the excuse because we need to get through an insurer to try and get the medication that we want to use in a given patient. If you push the numbers up, like around 14, you're much more certain the patient actually has cirrhosis. And by the time you get to 1920, you actually start seeing an association with the presence of complications of advanced liver disease. So again, the, the stiffer the liver gets, the more likely you are to have those other problems as well. And on this end, very low numbers are very reassuring because uh, it's very accurate in, in that range. And uh, you basically don't have anything going on in that patient, even if they have disease. Now, there is another type of elastography. It's MR elastography. And uh, it's, it requires some special equipment to go with, a, with an MR machine. But it works exceedingly well. It uh, gives us a very good uh, uh, understanding of what's going on across the liver in terms of fibrosis and using some other techniques, fat as well, in the liver. But it's not easy to get. In my city, in Cincinnati, uh, only our children's hospital has this, and it costs about $3,000 a study. So uh, liver biopsies cost about $2,000. So it's actually cheaper to do a biopsy than it is to get a, an MR elastography. And we reserve this often for patients with diseases like underlying hemophilia A, where where the cost of factor replacement far exceeds the uh, cost of, uh, of doing one of these studies. This shows you the areas under the curve. And you could see, again, just look here. They're all over 0.9. So this, compared to liver biopsy, is a superb test. There's other non-invasive tests that, that use blood. And those are easier, right? All you have to do is draw blood. Some of them are proprietary. This is data from the original uh, fibro test, which was developed in France, and in the US is sold as FibroSure. Proprietary test, five different subtests plugged into a regression model algorithm. Uh, and you could see that if you had a patient with a very low score, they, they range from zero to one. So if someone comes in at a, at a 0.17, they have virtually no fibrosis. And if they come in at a 0.9, they're cirrhotic. It's not that good in the middle uh, because there's a tremendous amount of overlap. So a patient that comes in at a, a 0.5 may have F1, F2, F3. You're not really, really sure of that, even though, again, the manufacturer gives you some recommended cutoffs. But the cutoffs they use tend to err on the side of not missing cirrhosis. And if you really want to know if the patient has cirrhosis, you need to push the numbers up. So a, a 0.72 is what the manufacturer says if you're using this test. Uh, for cirrhosis, 0.8, you can feel very confident the patient does indeed have cirrhosis. Um, and this just shows you, this is the manufacturer's interpretation levels. 
the easiest tests to get are a series of tests that uh, that allow you to just use common routine lab tests that you get on a comprehensive metabolic panel or hepatic uh, profile um, and a CBC to determine things. There is AAR, there's APRI. Of the, the main ones used, the most accurate appears to be the FIB4. So FIB4 uses age, platelet count, AST, and ALT. And now you know what those things uh, are, except we haven't talked a lot about platelets yet. Patients get older, so in a disease like hep C, the older you are, the more likely you are to have had the disease. That's why it works in that formula. We'll talk about why platelet count works in a few minutes. And these are measures of inflammation and also relate to the fact that as liver disease progresses, we tend to see a shift, a split between the ALT and AST with a reversal of which number is higher. You plug it into a formula, which you can get on your smartphone, and you get an interpretation from that number. If the if it's less than 1.45, you can be pretty confident that, that it's F0, F1. At greater than 3.25, it's F3 or F4, although look, look how good that is, 65% positive predictive value. It's not great. It's better than doing nothing in terms of staging your patient. And so this is always a fallback tool. And how good are those tests? Well, this shows you the uh, this multiple tests. In here is uh, is Fib4 and uh, and uh, the Fibro uh, Sure and and elastography. And you can see that they fall apart a bit in the middle ranges, but have are very accurate at the ends. So no fibrosis, cirrhosis, very accurate. Okay, progression. So people, because wounds heal differently, people progress at different rates. And there are many factors that go into that. We don't know what any one individual is going to do. And so there are people that get hep C and 50 years later have still have not gotten to the stage of cirrhosis, which is these people down here. Um, some people progress very, very quickly, and others are in the middle. The median time of progression in the average patient that doesn't have other disease processes for hep C from infection to cirrhosis is about 34 to 35 years. So this is a slow-moving disease. It's part of the reason that hep C is called a silent epidemic is because all these people were infected during the baby boomer years and didn't know it, and now we're seeing them with clinical disease decades later because that's how long it took for this disease to progress. In diseases like HIV, uh, it can go much faster. These are data from Baltimore, Johns Hopkins, where they took a bunch of patients with relatively recently acquired hep C, and those patients uh, were not treated because they had early stage disease, and they were followed. 
A repeat liver biopsy was done just under a median time of three years later. And the important thing is that, that about 25% had progressed two or more fibrosis stages in just that slightly under three-year time. HIV, particularly untreated HIV, is an important cofactor for progression of liver disease. And some patients can indeed move very, very quickly. Okay, fat. We're getting more interested in fat um, for a variety of reasons, but there's a lot of confusion about fat. So you remember our pictures of the liver. This is a picture of a liver too, but it looks different. It's got all these white circles all through it. And those white circles are fat globules in each individual cell. This is what America is starting to look like in their livers. Um, the obesity epidemic has led to excess storage of fat within livers as well as elsewhere. And uh, what we see is individual cells, they, they push aside the rest of the cell, which gets squeezed together. The nucleus gets pushed to the edge. But these are hepatocytes filled with fat. However, though this has implications for metabolic syndrome, for diabetes, for atherosclerotic disease, this actually is not very significant for the liver, which is why focusing on fat alone is not a, a very useful exercise when thinking about the liver. So, I mentioned that we have CAP. CAP gives us a rough idea of the total fat within a liver. And here are our cutoffs that we use in my group after surveying a bunch of studies and using various cutoffs. Uh, we, we try and relate this to, to the CAP level and we get these stages. And when we report them, because there's a lot of overlap, we just call stage two and three significant steatosis is present. This is a liver disease. This is NASH. And in NASH, we have deposition of scar in a different pattern than you saw before. Um, we, we've become less of a rural uh, kind of uh, nation, but, uh, but my grandparents owned a chicken farm, and so I knew what chicken wire was. This is called chicken wire fibrosis because it was the kind of wire that went on chicken coops. It's sort of these octagonal little squares, and that's what you put in around the chicken coop. So people, this type of injury from both fat and alcohol gives you chicken wire fibrosis. And uh, it also gives you ballooning, cells that, that blow up in size, and then the nucleus sort of disintegrates. It's a different kind of injury than we get with viruses. And it, it, it's not any less harmful when we get this. This also leads to cirrhosis, but it, the way we get there is somewhat different and the pattern is different. And this is important to know about because as we move forward, these are the patients we want to identify and find new drugs to intervene with related to this. Here's cirrhotic patient. So again, liver lobules surrounded by scar makes it cirrhosis, but in this case, this is a NASH-related cirrhosis.
The Nash scoring system is important to think about because people, again, focus on fat. But you need five points at least in the scoring system to be called NASH, as opposed to NAFL, non-alcoholic fatty liver. And you could see that there's different ways that you can get there. But uh, fat, even a lot of fat, does not get you there. It's only three points. And that you need ballooning of cells to get there. You need fibrosis to get there. The, the points that you get for fibrosis are very important. And those things lead to the diagnosis of NASH. So where we're at today is NASH can only be diagnosed on a liver biopsy. Okay, complications of cirrhosis. There are two clocks in patients with, um, with hepatitis from the time of disease to the development of cirrhosis. And the second one is cirrhosis to either liver cancer or hepatic decompensation. Hepatic decompensation in a cirrhotic patient occurs at a rate of about 5 to 6% per year. So when a patient, you tell them they're cirrhotic, they want to know what does that mean. It means that in 10 years, about half of those people will have developed decompensated disease. For liver cancer, the rates are about 1% to 2% per year in that patient. And that is on top of decompensation. What is decompensation? The development of ascites with its complications, encephalopathy, bleeding varices, or coagulopathy defined as a PT greater than three seconds over control. If any one of those is present, your patient is decompensated. And so it's important to sort of fix that definition in your head because that's going to change how you manage that patient and what we do with it. We have different ways of staging the cirrhotic patient. The classic way is the child's turcot pugh system, which looks at bilirubin albumin PT, presence or absence of encephalopathy, and presence or absence of ascites. You get individual points. You score them. And you get, finally, a classification of trials A, B, or C. This applies only to cirrhotic patients. We don't say a, a patient with F2 fibrosis is a child's A. They're not. Only once you have cirrhosis do we, do we talk about this. And the reason is that this was used to predict outcomes from shunt surgery when it was originally developed. And then it was used to make decisions about liver transplantation. But it was replaced by the MELD system, which Dr. Sag mentioned before. The MELD is the model for end-stage liver disease. It uses bilirubin, creatinine, and INR as markers. And now there's a sodium addition that some people are using extensively. And it's used to predict mortality and time of transplant. So here's an example. Patient has some numbers. None of them are individually terrible. Creatinine's 1.6, bilirubin's 1.4, INR's 1.6. All of them somewhat elevated. But you plug them into the model, and which you can again get on your smartphone, and the MELD is 17. 
And a MELD of 17 means they have a three-month mortality of 18%. That's quite significant. That's above the level that we think about transplantation at 15. And so this is a patient that has severe liver disease and should be thought of as such. When do you refer a patient? Any hepatic decompensation, ascites, encephalopathy, variceal bleeding, meld greater than 10. Now, people get frustrated. They send a patient to a transplant center, melds greater than 10, and they get a note back. It says, thank you, but this patient's not yet ready for transplantation. That's true. But the transplant centers want to see that patient and start to get to know them and start to do the things that you do, knowing that it is highly likely that patient is going to progress. And then any sign of liver cancer is another reason why you have to get that patient to a transplant center. I said that everything is about blood flow. If the liver gets blocked by scar, various things happen. Blood flow can't go this way. It has to go someplace. The spleen gets big. Platelets go down. That's why platelets are a measure in uh, in non-invasive tests like like using the Fib4 test. It's simply a measure of portal hypertension, not of the fibrosis of the liver. It's are we already seeing the complications of scar being in the liver? The patient has large ascites. This patient has about 20 liters of fluid in their abdomen. Um, They have a caput medusae. The blood vessels on the anterior abdomen are the body's response to trying to shunt blood away from the liver and still get it back into the general circulation. When do you tap us? Whoops. When do you tap ascites? First time it's discovered. Every time a patient is admitted to the hospital and with all changes in status. I often hear that it's too hard to do. And then what really kills me is when People in a hospital send patients to the interventional radiologist to do a CT-guided tap of the abdomen. I always show this picture. It's a woodblock from the 1400s. They were using bamboo tubes to drain ascites. This is not rocket science. You do not need a $2,000 CT scan to figure out how to tap ascites. What do you do? And why do you have to do anything? Because when you see this, that's when you should be calling your transplant center. But your center's in all likelihood going to say, it's going to take us one to two months to get that patient in for their first appointment. And you can't do nothing. So what do you do? You put the patient on sodium restriction. If there's a lot of fluid, you do a large volume paracentesis. You start these drugs. This is not congestive heart failure. You don't just give them Lasix, furosemide. It's actually the key drug is spironolactone or aldactone. You give it in a ratio of 50 milligrams to 20 milligrams, and you can increase it every two weeks as needed. I want you to know that when a patient with liver disease comes in with this, this is not pneumonia with a paranemonic effusion. This is hepatic hydrothorax. If you put a chest tube in this patient, you have killed the patient. This is malpractice at its worst. Don't do it. 
your pulmonologists and your particularly your chest surgeons are going to tell you you should do this, do not do it. The protein loss kills a patient within two months. And once they're in, they're very hard to remove. Varices, patient has varices. That's another way of shunting blood around the liver. You only know if a patient has varices if you look for them with an EGD. If a patient has cirrhosis, 35 to 80% will have varices. Of those, 25 to 40% will bleed. If you bleed, 30 to 50% die at that bleed within 30 days. This is serious. This is big stuff. We want to prevent this. So we screen patients. If they have varices, we give them beta blockers. If they're big varices, we do beta blockers plus banding. But you have to get your patient into that system to start thinking about it. Asterixis, hepatic encephalopathy. It's common. We treat it with a combination of lactulose and rifaximin, non-absorbable antibiotic, more effective than the use of lactulose alone. Patients have minimal hepatic encephalopathy, meaning before they start flapping. And this leads to errors. Heavy equipment operators, people driving cars, traffic accidents go up. You often have to separate your patient from their car in the setting of early hepatic encephalopathy. Not easy to do. And finally, HCC surveillance. Patients with advanced liver disease need an ultrasound every six months. Not once a year because it's close enough. Liver cancers double at a rate of every four to six months. You can't see it on most ultrasounds until it's between one and two centimeters. That means three months to six months later, it's six centimeters. We use something called the Milan criteria. If it's bigger than five centimeters, the patient is metastatic and no longer transplantable. So you can cure liver cancer with transplant when it's under five centimeters. You have to catch it in that window, and that's why you need to do an ultrasound every six months. So in summary, to finish up, HCV is also a liver disease, and we can't forget that if we're going to treat these patients. You need to ask in every patient you see, is advanced fibrosis present? And, and by whatever method you have available to do that, if yes, start surveillance for varices, ascites, hepatocellular carcinoma. Contact the hepatologist early when decompensation is present. And don't forget, manage the complications. It may be a couple of months when you do find them before you can get someone in, and that patient needs your care immediately. Thank you. Wonderful. Okay. We'll do a couple questions. It's always a great summary from uh, Ken, and uh, even though I probably have heard this talk uh, maybe 30 times, it, I always pick up something new. This time, Jello. Good. Uh, although I think you've said that before. So let me just kind of review before we go to the Q&A um, that pretest that you took. Just 
we've already covered almost 80 percent of the answer, so I just want to review <laughs> about the progression. We said about 30 to 50 percent of people uh, with chronic uh, liver disease. We talked just now about ultrasounds. Um, it's being good for picking up hepatocellular uh, carcinoma. You don't screen for cirrhosis with that, right? Some of the other techniques that Dr. Sherman reviewed. Um, we talked just now about screening for HCC in a person with cirrhosis. Uh, every six months because you don't want the liver size, uh, tumor size to get more than five centimeters from a long criteria. Um, those uh, who uh, should be placed at highest priority for treatment would be those with advanced cirrhosis, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't be treating everyone. We should be curing this disease. That's what we, if, if we had a cure for HIV, do you think we'd sit around going, well, should we cure them or not? Right. Um, we talked about the IL-28B um, as being important with interferon but uh, perhaps not as important with the DAA regimens. Um, and uh, we're going to get to some other uh, answers here in screening for hepatocellular carcinoma, the upper endoscopy uh, every three years, as we just heard, uh, and some of the other things we haven't gotten to yet. So questions for Dr. Sherman? Lots. Lots. You want to start I'll, over here? I'll, I'll be uh, you'll, you'll... Phil Donahue. <laughs> Is a caller there? You're talking about the screening um, after treatment. What about pre-treatment screening? Like with limited funding, we're able to get a lot of the testing done to stage people and genotype them and whatnot. But there's limited funding with some of our um, uh, less insured people mm -hmm. to get this pre-treatment ultrasound. How comfortable would you be with that? You know, if you think that advanced disease is present in that patient, so, so again, Metavir F3, F4, it's actually quite critical that you get a pretreatment ultrasound to ensure that the patient doesn't already have a liver cancer before you, you start that patient. Uh, we have, in my center, many examples of this. Uh, we just saw a patient a couple of weeks ago that... Uh, that someone actually screened the patient but did not get an ultrasound, treated the patient appropriately, and uh, then the patient continued to have belly pain. They eventually went to an ER, got a CT, and they had an eight centimeter liver cancer, which might have been caught before. So it's very important. So we cured the hep C and killed the patient. That, I mean, that's not what we want to do. So the, those of you who are wondering, Phil Donahue is a prehistoric talk show host, uh, <laughs> if you're wondering about that. Um, so so I've, I've got a question back here. Um, at our institution, we don't have transient elastography yet, and so, you know, we do APRI, FEB4, or FibroShore, and then we struggle with what imaging study to do, ultrasound, MRI, CT. Do you have any recommendations on that as we're trying to put together yeah, a picture? So, so ultrasound for liver cancer is certainly the cheapest, most efficient way. It's not, it's not the most sensitive method. And, uh, and so if, particularly if the patient is obese, it's important to think about that because ultrasound misses more in obese people. And, and I didn't mention it, but when we get a patient with a liver lesion, the first thing we do is not just a CT, but a multiphasic CT, which in different institutions is called either biphasic, triphasic, 
quadphasic, multiphasic, they're all the same thing. It means, it means they shoot dye and they follow the patient from the arterial to the venous phase to the what's called the washout phase. It's very important that they do that kind of CT because a standard contrast CT will not see most liver cancers. So obese patient, we will try to get CT or MR in some centers, but ultrasound generally is the cheapest, most efficient. And just- Staging, though, and helping in aiding with fibrosis. Oh, staging. oh, oh, in fibrosis. Before, before, staging. We get off of, before we get off a of CT, just to make a point that uh, if you have a positive four phase or three phase CT, that's pathognomonic, it's diagnostic of cancer. You don't have to do a biopsy after that. That's that would right. Be a in fact, qu- that that's would be a another qu- common error. Uh, okay, we'll come back to you, yeah, but like it is important to say that, that, uh, that there's a tendency, particularly in in hospitals where they don't typically deal with patients with liver cancer, that if a lesion is seen, just like lesions in other places in the body, you want to stick a needle in it and, and they get, want to get a sample. Except for very rare cases, like 2 to 4% of all cases with a liver lesion, we never stick a needle in it because you have the possibility of seeding the tract. And if you do then a liver transplant doesn't help because you actually lead to multicentric disease. You can't transplant that patient. So we use the, the multiphasic CT or MR characteristics. Your question, I misunderstood, is yeah, specifically was, in terms of fibrosis. Yeah, since we don't have so unless you have MR transient elastography, no study is going to help you with that. They're not able to tell you about fibrosis stage. So, yeah, so similar question. I mean, same institution, and we send a lot of people for, if we suspect advanced fibrosis, we send them for MRI, or if not, just ultrasound. But often on ultrasound, we get increased echogenicity consistent with chronic liver disease. That means nothing. Right. And So so every patient with hep C, essentially, if you have inflammation, you get an increased signal bounce back and they have increased echogenicity. And, and so the typical radiology answer is increased echogenicity seen in the liver consistent with either chronic liver disease or fatty infiltration, clinical correlation required. That's like useless. Right. And, so, uh, <laughs> on, so on MRI, we often get things like low bar redistribution, widening of the fissure, is that enough without commenting on actual nodular contour no, to tell the patient they not, have not sufficient okay. to tell you that. Wasted $3,000. Right. Yeah, that's a super expensive test. But ask them to get the module to do the elastography. And they said no. <laughs> but they'll buy the million-dollar MRI. What happens when you have a discordant result? For yeah. example, a fibro test of fibrosure that says F1 or F2, and, I mean, rather, F4, in an elastography that says F4. That is a fantastic question. Discordant results. We do see discordant results or things that just don't make sense. And uh, we frequently do, those are the patients we still biopsy. So in my institution, Five years ago, we were doing 2,500 biopsies a year. And this past year, we did about 380. And uh, it was for a mix of transplant patients, post-transplant patients, 
and a few of those discordance. It's, the numbers have come down. They're not zero, but you know, it will, you'll get the right answer most of the time, but if you really need to know, a biopsy ultimately gives you the answer. So after you, after the patient finishes their Hep C treatment, are you following um, transient elastography thereafter to uh, look for resolution or improvement yes. in their um, steatosis or fibrosis? And if so, it, at what interval are you doing that? That is a great question. So after elastography became available in Europe well before in the U.S., and uh, about three years afterwards, we began to see literally dozens, if not hundreds of papers saying, look, we have a cohort that we treated to cure and, uh, and their, their TE score goes down. They go from, they were 12.8 and now they are 10.3. So we have reduced them from cirrhosis to an F3 stage. And it turns out that that is not true at all. What we are seeing is the decrease in inflammation, and what remains to be done in the field is actually a complete recalibration of where should the cutoffs be for, for cirrhosis and the sub-cirrhosis stages after the hep C and the associated inflammation is gone. We don't know that. We've come to realize that, that in the rare cases where someone has a late biopsy, they were cirrhotic, even though their score goes down, um, it doesn't matter. The, their liver hasn't changed. Two quick questions on the cards here, one related. Is there any uf- usefulness to letting inflammation clear before testing for fibrosis? Uh, to let it... In other words, I guess if somebody has an acute inflammation, let's I'll make up something. They have acute alcoholic hepatitis uh, on top. Do you wait for it to clear? Well, cert- and, yeah. yeah, certainly you're going to get false results from other inflammatory processes, and uh, that's a problem. And and you could see what goes into the the simple non-invasive. If if all of the patients have an elevated ALT by the criteria I gave you before treatment and the, they're treated effectively and their ALT falls below 30 for men and 19 for women, all of their FIB4 scores go down afterwards. And again, that's meaningless. It doesn't mean the fibrosis went away. It just means the ALT went down. Yep. And then uh, this one's about your uh, histo uh, micrograph of uh, the NASH biopsy. And the question is about what is the deposited substance that you're detecting in those uh, chicken wires? Oh, it's collagen. That is scar. It's, uh, it's collagen, the same as we see in a hep C associated cirrhosis. And how does chicken wire actually get into the liver is what I was wondering. <laughs> I couldn't figure that out. I know what chicken wire the, is. The chicken crossed the street. Yeah, and, exactly. Uh, so. <laughs> Any other questions before we break? Well, yeah, one more. Here we go. Are you using the TACE procedure at all before you, um, while working someone up for a transplant, or do you find it effective in avoiding transplant? Right. So the question is about TACE. TACE is one of the methods used to reduce tumor size in a patient that is being worked up or awaiting transplantation. It's uh, it's uh, transarterial chemoembolization. We do use TACE. We use uh, uh, 
cryotherapies, we, we use uh, ablation using radio waves, radiofrequency ablation. Uh, there's a mix of procedures used. Many patients get concurrent use of Nexavar serafinib as part of it uh, to try and downstage that patient and, uh, and keep, because we don't know how long the wait's going to be. Um, I, I just actually have a patient that I have followed for many, many years, a co-infected patient. We cured her hep C a couple of years ago and shortly after discovered uh, a cancer and uh, it was growing rapidly. We did all of those things and uh, it's been a year and a half. She finally was able to get a liver about a week ago and, and is now post-transplant. But those are all procedures to help you delay until the liver is available. Great. Um, I think we'll go ahead and take our break now. Uh, we'll go to about 10.15, come back, and then Dr. Nagy is going to take over with the fast review of what's new in the guidelines. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, Tom Murphy. Work at uh, Emory. I'm the